0: Welcome to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today, I welcome Anthony Conduras to the show. Anthony is the founder and author of the book, Run Frictionless. Anthony has been designing and building sales systems for startups for well over a decade. Based on his experiences, he's written an easy-to-read book that founders and marketing teams can grasp. One frictionless will guide you on how to design a sales system using a framework he developed called the four Qs. Doesn't matter the type of startup, the methodology works with any type of business. We dig into all this, the four Q's, how to apply it, how to leverage in your business, and so much more. So if you're a founder or business owner that is struggling to get out of the primary sales role, this episode and this system was for you. Enjoy and as a reminder, if you listen to this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite platform and share it with your friends and colleagues that might enjoy it as well. Thank you for listening and now onto the interview.
1: Hello, Anthony. Welcome to the podcast. Hey there, Brett. Thank you very much for having me on
0: board. It's great to have you. Appreciate you taking the time. As we were talking offline, you had me at the title of your book, Run Frictionless, but (laughs) we'll get into that in a second. No, but like I said, I was super thrilled to have you on the program because we don't talk to a lot of folks about the sales process and we talk about revenue growth, but Most people don't have a plan or a system for it. So definitely want to dig into that today. But before we go too deep, maybe, you know, maybe share with the audience what you're working on today, who you're working with, and then we can get into it.
1: Yeah, thank you, Brett. Well, what's been occupying my time for the last fortnight is creating a playbook. In fact, we just released our playbook today. So the book, Run Frictionless, which you've read, Brett, is more like on a conceptual level just to explain the theory and the framework. What we're really focusing on now is helping folks DIY the execution. And so the playbook's been very instrumental. It's been in the making now for a while because what we've been doing is we've been watching how our customers use our playbooks during a service we have called a friction tune-up, where we get on like very much like we're doing now, one-hour session. We do some design thinking and we use a playbook as a means to describe the kinds of changes we want to make in their business using the four Qs. So we've kind of culminated all that learning and tried to create a playbook where hopefully more people can DIY the four Qs.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. We can get into the number of DIY versus folks that need help. I mean, I love the concept of DIY, but I think most people need that help, right? That facilitator, the the teacher, if you will, to get it. So you know, I do want to get into the book, and the playbook sounds like it's you know going to be super interesting as well. So maybe to kick us off, why why did you write the book? I mean, I think I have an idea, but I'd love to hear from you what kind of led you down the
1: path to write it. Well, when I sold my second startup, I got those. So I've, I've done you know two startups myself, so I know the pain and the misery and the fortune that goes with it. But after that, I started to spend the last sort of four or five years just building sales systems. So I'm one of those guys that just goes into a company and builds the process from the ground up from A to Z. And the challenge that you have when you're trying to introduce a process is that a lot of the times, people don't understand the concepts. You know, They don't understand what you're bringing. And it takes like 30 days just to teach people the basic concepts before you even really get started. And sometimes they only give you 3 months to show results, right? Right. (laughs) <laughs> especially in so sales thought,
0: that can be really difficult it takes some time yeah yeah
1: yeah you lose 30% of your time trying to explain the concepts and going around in circles with the thought so it was, I think it was 2014-15 I said right I'm going to sit down and I'm going to put my mind down into paper form so that I can give this to a customer before I begin that consultation work and say hey please read this so it doesn't take very long. It's pretty simple to read. Read it first, and then if you like the content and you agree with the direction, then call me and let's work together.
0: Yeah, it makes sense, and you're so right. I mean, even working between startups, enterprise companies, just getting two departments to speak the same language is really hard. And so if you're introducing a third, you know vocabulary to it, and so when you when you started, sending that out ahead of time, were you working with, was this back with the startups and founders or were you working with different groups? Who was your target when you you first started looking at this?
1: Yeah. It's all pre-revenue businesses. I really took the most difficult end of the market. And and I noticed that a lot of like business coaches, like people who are kind of in a similar field as like I'm working in, won't touch these guys. You know, they'll they'll say, look, we only work with businesses that do a minimum of five hundred thousand a year. So, I started working with companies that were all pre-revenue. I don't know why, <laughs> but you I did. like the
0: challenge <laughs>
1: it must be, or maybe I'm just a sucker for pain. I just enjoyed that, and that's that's really where the growth has been. But subsequently, it's expanded a little bit further, and we're getting now into like the one hundred and thirty to hundred fifty people businesses where you're talking more about high growth startups.
0: Yeah, and it makes sense. and we were talking a little bit offline before. you know, I spent you know twenty five year career between startups and enterprise. And, you know, enterprise has the same challenge that you solved with your book and the playbook that, that startups have. And I love the idea of getting it, you know, in their hands early and building kind of the culture, the DNA around, you know, the four cues and this process as you start to grow versus all of a sudden we've got 50 people or hundred people and they're trying to figure it out and love to get your perspective too, as we dig into this from, the founder's perspective how easy or difficult you know it's been for you to get them out of the sales process right <laughs> it's hard to get yeah. hard, hard to let go and i'm just and i'm sure there's no single standard answer for that but just love your perspective on you know when you're starting this process how was that received
1: there's a a kind of trend that i've noticed with them um, if they haven't been able to get themselves out of a sales role by about the second or the third year since the inception of the business. They just start getting tired. And by about the fourth the fifth year, if they're still making the same mistake, they're already trying to become like chairman. They're trying to throw themselves out of the business as opposed to scaling themselves out of it. Yeah, like it. So what I tend to do is I tend to talk to founders who have been trying for about two, maybe three years because they really understand the pain they began to realize that they're getting tired. And that's when they're looking for frameworks and ideas. To your point earlier, Brett, you were talking about technically led founders. And it's interesting because a lot of the people who have been very excited about the framework are people who like frameworks, which tend to be technical people, right? Like They (laughs) like WordPress and they like different frameworks and things like this. So when they hear about a framework, they think that's probably going to be better than the individual efforts of the people without a framework. So CTOs and COOs have been very excited about the four Qs because I just think that the mentally they're they're looking for frameworks to put into their business. Yeah,
0: and it makes sense in process driven, right? You're you're absolutely right. They engineers, CTOs, technology, yeah. it's, you know, the the process, and it makes sense. And that's kind of the other thing too. When you mentioned the two years, if it's not, I think you're starting to hit burnout at that that point, right? And I haven't seen personally worked with a company that's been able to scale where the founder is still involved in the selling process they may be you know for super big large enterprise deals you may help close but if they're active in the sales process they're not scaling again if they don't want to be they want to be still fine but something tells me your customers and your readers are not the ones that are happy to be in the sales process is that that fair
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I think as a shareholder, I'd be a little bit concerned in the business because, you know, what's the value of a sale that's made where it requires the the founder to close the sale or to, or to create the sale? Like, really, what's the value of that sale? I think the value of the sale is when somebody else other than them can close the deal without them. I think now you're talking about a valuable sale.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with you on that. And it gets harder, right? Because the, the, the founder and you know, they're very passionate about their product and it's just through pure excitement and enthusiasm, they can get some sales. But, you know, how do you translate to the first guy you're bringing on or gal or woman to help sales? They're not going to have that same passion for your product. Hopefully they see the value of the product, but Mm -hmm. I think that's really where the value of your system comes into place, you know, is having a clear process that as you bring salespeople on or just anybody that can help with the sale, you know, there is a you know, playbook for them them to follow.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think that that's the idea because you know you were describing it before as being almost like sort of black art, you know, where it's you just keep trying to hire the right salesperson to make the sale. And I think we now we need a lot more predictability, and that's what's interesting about your podcast. I like it because you're talking about ideas about how to introduce predictability as opposed to like these tips and tricks. Which worked for a while, but I think we need way more robust means of knowing that we can reach predictable revenue.
0: Yeah, no, that's so true. And I used to have the tagline in the early days people have been listening from the beginning, but no, you know, it's a no hacks approach to growth, right? Because there's some shortcuts you can take, but it's, but it's not yeah. sustainable. So maybe that's a good segue into. And again, we don't have to go super deep so people will actually go out and buy your book and then find the playbook and reach out to you for help. But I think it would be a really good exercise to kind of go through the four cues. I may have a few follow-up questions that I've been saving since I, I read the book, but I think that would be really a good help. At least people would have an understanding what the framework looks like we, they've heard us talking about it. So are they thinking, is this something I can really do? Or do I have, you know what I'm saying? So Let's let's get into the, at least the core concepts of the book.
1: Yeah, sure. So the four Qs is a decision-making framework, and it's designed to help sales teams or the founder of the organisation scale their their organisation, their business. And four Qs because there are indeed four quadrants. Quadrant one addresses whom we serve. I mean, the remaining three quadrants deal with what we are serving, uh, the customer, uh, what we share in common with the customer, and how we serve the customer so the first quadrant is really primarily focused on customer profiles who we serve second quadrant is really looking at the product what we serve the quadrant one quadrant three you raised earlier which is interesting which is who we are which is a much deeper question and then the last quadrant is how we serve so this is more about the interactions or the experience how does it feel like to become a customer of your business
0: yeah, and that's where I, t- I go back to time. Love the title of frictionless, All right? Hopefully, their interactions with you is frictionless. They get through, you know, clean, smooth. They have a great experience. And you know, it's interesting when you're talking about the pre-revenue and if you're looking at quadrant run, who's our customer profile? That's got to be an interesting conversation or exercise. And is it more because you can't really talk to the customers per se? I guess you can talk to the people who you're can Maybe give us an idea of how. How you tee that up, or how you walk through quadrant run to get to help them make sure they're aligned with the right customers.
1: Yeah, so it really is a series of tests, and I think one of my greatest criticisms of startups is when one of their one of their challenges, if you may, is to get a quadrant one, quadrant two fit. You want to be able to look at the features, the limitations, and the workarounds in quadrant two, and find the customer who you ought to be serving in Quadrant one. So in a sense, what you've got imagine Brett, you've got like a stick and you're trying to fit this piece of timber into a piece of furniture, right? You can spend all your time in Quadrant 2 building product and shaving that end of that piece of wood, only to discover later that the other end doesn't fit anyway. So you can waste millions of dollars in your shareholders' money burning it away in Quadrant 2 when in actual fact, a lot more work could have done be done by the salespeople. So here's a really simple way that they can start making headway into quadrant one, and that is one really simple practice would be from every sales call, every sales interaction that the salespeople make, they have to bring away one piece of intelligence to help make the next sale easier.
0: Yeah.
1: And we set up a ticketing system in one organization. It was awesome. So they had a ticketing system, very much like Jira or Trello, or anything like that. Yeah. What would happen is that the salespeople are obliged uh, each time they have an interaction with a the customer, they've got to try and give back some intelligence to the organization to help qualify better what's going on in Quadrant one.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a fantastic. I mean, it's like kind of the customer service calls right with dispositions, right? So this is why they called yeah. and here's it so you get a better idea of who's calling in about one because if you just ask the salesperson afterwards, well why don't people buy? the price is too high. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) You might be right. But there's probably... I love that idea of putting some research in behind and learning from everything. Right? You're putting in the time. You're not scaling yet. You might as well take advantage of every one of those calls that you're making. I'm guessing that's a shift for some of these founders as they're starting to go through this process. Right? Is there a little culture shock when they do this? Or does it make... The light bulb go off and go, aha, this makes sense.
1: Yeah, you know, if it's a situation where there's at least one person in the organization who can consistently make sales, you're talking about a much easier problem to solve, right? Because it's really about studying their behavior and then replicating it. But if you're in a situation where nobody is making sales, so I've dealt with some pre revenue organizations where not even the founder is actually making headway selling product. What you've got there is, there's no point talking about sales commissions because actually the the role of the salespeople is not to make a sale. It's to teach the organization how to make a sale.
0: Yeah, I always used to say it's to help the customer or the buyer facilitate the buying process, but I like that too. Help them learn. Yeah, way too many that it is about the quota and making the sale and hitting the number and nobody's getting smarter doing that, right? The good salespeople are getting richer, (laughs) but the organization's not getting any smarter. Yes.
1: And I think as well, the interesting part of Quadrant 2 is is that if you do it smart, like what way I suggested in the book, which is you have the customer who you serve today and the customer profiles that you serve tomorrow. So you get very, as one operations person told me, he said, you know, he believes that the Quadrant 1, Quadrant 2 fit is actually the responsibility of the product owner. Very interesting. In this organization, when we rolled it out, he was saying, no, it's actually Quadrant 1 is not going to be the responsibility of the salespeople it's the responsibility of the product owner. And so what he did was, was he got the product people to spend less time in quadrant two and started building them into the interactions to get first-hand intelligence from quadrant one. So back to your point, you know how you were saying before, the salespeople come running in and say, ah, oh, they don't like the price. Ah, oh, they don't like the features. Well, the product owner can't deal with that. Right, That's meaningless intelligence. So because their livelihood is on the line, they're going to dig a little deeper, right? To find out exactly what the problem is.
0: Yeah, no, hundred no, percent. And I was just looking for a, a, quote that I think came from you, which was a line, line, what you just said. You know, the purpose of the sales system, is not to save company time and money. The aim is to not is not to make the sales system more efficient, but to help customer achieve their goal in the shortest amount of time. And I read that, I'm like sold right it's such a different way of thinking about it but when you change that mindset it makes so much more sense right the old days you know the the hard sell the used car salesman you know the this car is going to be gone in two days you have to buy it now i don't have it just doesn't work maybe it does limited time but back to our point it's not gonna it's not sustainable or scalable so if you can get them to think differently you know, I think that, that was your quote, right? I heard that from you somewhere.
1: I don't know okay. if I quoted anybody else, Brett, but yeah. You, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm
0: giving you the credit for that one too. So, and the other interesting thing that you had I've heard you talk about or it was in the book was selling tomorrow, which I think would that fit into quadrant two, not into quadrant three yet? It's just around the product and don't sell what you don't have.
1: <laughs> Maybe oh, right. we could yes. get into that
0: a little bit. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when you read, bad customer reviews when customers say bad things about companies they find it very hard to articulate this this concept this idea of future so but it's essentially when you've been sold on you've been told because the, a lot of sales will say yes 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 to everything because they don't spend enough time in quadrant two reading the fact sheets and thinking about the limitations mm-hmm. and then trying to say to myself okay well i understand these limitations are the product today who is the best map in quadrant one you know for it instead what they'll do is just, uh, they'll try to future sell the product and just say well it can be done yes 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 only to create a moving target right. where what happens in quadrant two now is uh, the customer will wake up during the onboarding process or at some point well after the transaction they'll say look you sold me on this you me this would be here it's not so guess what this is now conditional the sale is conditional to this feature. I won't pay. I'll just wait. Take as long as you need, and I won't buy it until you build the feature. So yeah. they're really putting the organization in a difficult position now because they're hijacking their product roadmap. Yeah,
0: and especially when you're smaller and growing, that's almost impossible to, to overcome, or it just creates so many other barriers. Because then you got the product team trying to figure out which one's the most important so I can close that sale. And yeah. you know, I know I tie it back to enterprise sometime, but this is where I think. Smaller companies and startups have the advantage because they can build some of the biggest failures of larger organizations. You know, I've been with companies, where well, marketing will position, one way sales will sell it this way. You try to onboard them with features that sales promise that they don't have. So they're already dissatisfied by the time they even get to the customer success right. team. And don't even get me started that the customer thought they dealt with four different organizations or companies as they went through that process. <laughs> But the, and that just really resonated with when you talk about that, that said, hey, this is where we're at now. Let's find the customers that this makes sense for. They can grow with us. But here's how we're going to solve this problem today. And if it's not for them, then that's not maybe the right Q1 customer, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Or what you could be doing is is that at least you're making them aware of the limitation, anticipating, and you know that they're going to hit this limitation, right? It's like when they come back to you and they'll say, "Oh, come on, you know, like you know my business. You knew I was going to need this. You didn't tell me you didn't have it, right?" So, having features, naming features in quadrant two is simply not enough anymore. We need to name the limitations, map those limitations to quadrant one, and then also be considerate around workarounds because even Google, with a market cap of one billion, names workarounds all the time with their products. You know, true. So I think it's okay. Workarounds are a fact of life. And if the salespeople are thinking about not just about features, but limitations and workarounds, right in that first meeting that they're having with the customer, they can table those limitations and those workarounds very quickly and in a very mature manner.
0: Yeah, and set the expectation, right? You know, a lot of companies don't do very well. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I may circle back to something in in quadrant two, but quadrant three to me was the most fascinating, probably the one we could have almost done a full episode just on on Q3, the who we are. So maybe for the audience, just give us your perspective and take on what Q3 is and maybe we can dig in a little bit. Because I think if you can get this right, it's going to help really... You can make some mistakes in Q1, Q2, and Q4 if you get Q3 right, which... Probably no one's ever 100% right, but I think striving for. So I'll kick mm-hmm. it back to you to kind of give us your your perspective on that.
1: That's very perceptive, Brett. Right? There is no one of my grievances with frameworks, and I researched a lot of them before I wrote the four cues, was they would stick you in fixed starting position. You know, they say you have to begin at this point. But one of the cute things about the four cues is you don't have to begin your journey in quadrant one. You can move sequentially, but a lot of people like to begin, say, in Quadrant 3. And I've had a lot of more like CX, DX people actually want to begin their, their journey in Quadrant 4. right? Yeah. So it's good that you're thinking about Quadrant 3 because I tell you what, <clears throat> if I was to redo Run Frictionless as a business, and so we operate on the 4Qs, so we use the 4Q product in our own company, but if I were to redo it again, I think that I would spend less time getting a Quadrant 1, Quadrant 2 fit at the beginning of our journey and I would have gone for a Quadrant 1, Quadrant 3 fit. And to give the viewers an understanding of why, like, okay, what is Quadrant 3? Well, who we are. There's essentially two levels to it. One is the identity of the organization. So it's about how you can consistently brand yourselves through every touch point which occurs in Quadrant 4. So that's just the first kind of cursive level but the deeper more sinister level is the shared belief and whether you ever strike a shared belief with quadrant one because what we found was in our research was yes it's true that customers make rational buying decisions between quadrants one and two they look at the features the limitations and the workarounds and then they try to compare that with other vendors to make the most informed buying decision but we've found that in even in B2B sales, we're discovering that the irrational buying forces of quadrant three really kick in, especially towards the end game of the sale, where everybody in quadrant two starts to look the same and people sit around the table and they say, Well, who stood out for you? Now you're talking about quadrant three, who we are.
0: Yeah, I think I read your quote, you know, 70% of the buying decisions are made out of Q3, right? If that doesn't Wake you up or open your eyes, you should be paying attention (laughs) to this. And it makes sense, right? Because as we talk about, yeah, to your point, and I've got an oversimplistic view of, you know, if you look at your problem and your go to markets, right? What problem are you solving for the customer? How do you solve it? How do you solve it differently? And you have the proof points, but that's almost to your point. It's hard to defense that unless you're different is really different and you've come up with a unique way. But unless you can wrap in, you know, who we are as part of that different, I think that's when it gets really powerful Yeah, and it's controllable. But if you don't get Q1 and Q2 right, and there is, there's only six people that care about <laughs> the, who we are, you're not going to scale it. But I don't think there's that many people that actually pay attention to the, the Q3 and who we are. And that's where a lot of the value comes. And I know Q4 with the execution process, 100%, you got to get that right. If they have a bad experience, they're not coming back. But yeah. as you're trying to get other people... At least as this is what I took out of your, <laughs> as you're trying to get new people into the organizations to sell, you know, your product or solutions, you've got to get them internally as part of the who we are, so they can with confidence, right, sell that to the customer base, and it's not just, a, oh, features and benefits, here's our price, you know, I got to make three sales to get it. So I don't know if you've got any magic sauce that helps people really get to that who we are in Q3. I'd love to maybe have you dig in a little bit on that and you know how you ended up on that is part of the process i know it's a very broad question <laughs> but yeah, just kind of <laughs> curious how you got there and how you help companies get there i guess is even probably the more helpful point
1: All right how i got there was very easy to answer what i noticed was when we were designing pitch decks for organizations we started spending more time at the beginning of the pitch talking about who we are, so maybe five slides. And then another 25 slides, we would then go into the product about the benefits and how that ties back to the organization and their company. But the most important thing was is that I would teach the salespeople if you don't capture their imagination, their attention in the first five slides, the product won't matter. They'll never buy anyway. Don't worry about quotes. Don't worry about features. In fact, just pack up and leave because there really won't be a sale. You will push the square into the triangle. You think you'll cheat yourself into believing that you're going to sell by using those hard tactics you described earlier, but you won't sell this product because if they're receiving glazed eyes or you are met with hostility, which quite often when people don't share your belief, they're hostile, but they'll tell you to get out of the office. I don't believe this stuff you're talking about. You want to get to that quadrant one, quadrant three fit as early as possible. So one of the things that you can do is building qualifying questions right back in the early game where you may ask like one or two questions which seem irrelevant to the customer, but actually are testing whether or not they believe and then don't let these people into your company because you're just wasting the time of your salespeople dealing with people who, by the way, you cannot change because we've done tests With our market research people, where we tried to convert non believers. We said, How much would it cost an organization to convert somebody who didn't have a quadrant one, quadrant 50, what would it it take? So, we got two fellas, right? The two top salespeople in a company, and we, we devoted their time to dealing with people who don't believe. Okay, so in this organization, the whole belief about the companies around compliance and the importance of compliance. So their customers come to them because, man, we believe in compliance. We need this for our enterprise business, right? But there's a group that don't believe in compliance. They believe in, maybe they believe in price. Or okay. Maybe they believe in something else, right? Yeah, yeah. So we said, what could we do? Like, And I said to them, look, I want you to just beat them over the head every single day. Don't talk about the product. Don't talk about the quote. And just get on the phone every day and say, we need to talk about your beliefs. Where are you with this? Have you changed since we last spoke? Let's try again. Let me try another angle. And we tried and tried and tried. And guess what? We only converted 5% of non-believers, man. We went like, holy crap, a quadrant one, quadrant three fit. If you don't get this right, you are in a lot of trouble.
0: You get a very expensive sales cycle too, right? At only a 5%. No, that's so true. And I'm... I think we've all had those customers that we've chased and we know I can convert them, right? They're close to seeing the value. They like me, but you know, two years later, we're still this close to closing it. But the fact is they never really saw the full value of what and had that shared vision of it. So, and I think this is perfect, perfect framework for companies that are, I mean, frankly, would work at the enterprise, but you're convincing a lot of different people and changing fundamental beliefs. But, and if you can get this right up front, I think your traction and your momentum, and taking the friction out of the process, is going to help accelerate some of that growth. Yeah,
1: and then that way, you know, we cannot have the shared beliefs is inside out. So you cannot go out to customers and the public and say this is what we stand for, and then when you come back inside the company. Talk about something completely different. It's got nothing to do with that. It doesn't work like this. It really is the very truth. And if there's one question that you can ask yourself, even in your own business, Brad, it's simply this: If you're trying to find what your belief is, if you're trying to seek it. Just ask yourself: If you didn't make any money today, what would be your motivation to go to the office? And then that becomes then the underlying basis for whom you hire, because those salespeople or the customer service people. What would be, if we didn't pay you today, what would be the reason why you would want to come to the office? And hopefully, everybody's talking a very similar belief. And then that belief will start to perpetuate into the quadrants one, two, and four throughout all of your decision-making. And so when you start talking about how to scale yourself out of the business, if you can get a quadrant, one quadrant, three, fit, your life is going to be so much easier now because people's decisions in those other quadrants become so much better and something you said earlier was about the power of how when you get a quadrant one, quadrant three fit, it influences the product you build in quadrant two. You see, the problem with quadrant two is it's not defensible. You right. know, we can reverse engineer out and figure out your product. We'll go and read it. I know because I teach people to do it, you know, we go and read your terms and conditions, we read your FAQs, we we do the fake demos, we figure out what's going on. But if you really want to confuse competitors. If you can take quadrant three and then start to direct the build in quadrant two based on your beliefs, you confuse the crap out of them. I've got no idea what's going on.
0: Yeah, that's that's so true, and that's where we get back to: how are we different, right? And yep. so much because if you're gonna base your business model on we're better, man, you've got to be a hundred x better, and because everybody's better than everybody else, yeah. and you know, just a, a question I had before we get, we get into Q four. Is as we're seeing the you know with COVID and the move we've seen B two B especially moving towards digital right it's been slow and you know we're a unique snowflake our industry is not digital hog well everybody's going to be there now so where I've seen success is when these companies are then able to articulate you know the Q three Q one online right it's one thing if you and I are having a conversation we can get into it so. Have you had or any recommendations? Maybe this is book two. <laughs> you know, how to take that, that messaging from mm. you know, the person-to-person to the online where I may come into your website and I want to make sure that, that who we are is, is coming across within what we're doing digitally. That makes sense. I said a whole lot of words.
1: <laughs> oh, no, it's quite accurate. And so what you can do there, I, I can think of like a broad approach. Which is your quadrant three, quadrant four fit. So what happens is, is that when you write the brand guidelines of the company, you know, its branding guidelines, you need to think about the belief. And you need a sentence for the belief, like one sentence, it needs to be distilled with no marketing jargon, written in the most simplistic language you can imagine. Okay. And then what you want to then do is, is when you're writing the content, the words, the pictures, which are going to associate themselves with every interaction, including the website. You want to make sure that you're gathering some of what was in Quadrant 3 and injecting it into those interactions because that's what will make them unique. There is one experience that I've designed in our company that I can tell you about that we're using in a few other organizations like our clients specifically has got nothing to do with Quadrant 2. It's got nothing to do about transactions. We're not selling. It's called a sharing session. And what happens is, is that it's a means of us to test whether or not we share this belief with another organization. It's done online and it's designed to be a sharing session. So what happens is is that you are expected to communicate and it's not a one-way presentation. It's like we're talking to our audience, but they're reciprocating their experiences at different points. And we're starting to gather not only their level of sophistication, but if they are not engaging with us and enjoying this sharing session, we're not going to be serving later. We're just, you know, it's over.
0: It's not a good fit. Cut ties, right? Save time. Both everybody's time. It's not going to be an and just kind of a follow-up to that. I know we're going going back to the sales. So if you're looking at recruiting folks, uh, my belief is that the traditional profile of a sales rep has changed, right? Give me a good problem solver, a facilitator, somebody that's empathetic is going to be, a, still have to have the DNA to ask for the money at the end of the day, right? Hey, if we solve this problem, you know, do we have a deal? But have you started to see and coach some of these founders on the type of talent they're looking for? Or how How do you approach the people side of this?
1: One part of it is Tony Shea kind of opened up my thinking of the former CEO, of Zappos. He wrote a book called Delivering Happiness. And in that book, what he was talking about was hiring first based on culture and then on technical. And then what he would do is, is during subsequent reviews, like let's just say we hired you, right, Brett? Like three months later, we don't just talk to you again about technical, about your ability to do, to sell or your ability to do market research. But talking about your fit culturally And so in this situation, the context of the four cues of applying that means that we're hiring first based on beliefs because we've already figured out we can't change your beliefs. Right. It's set in stone. Don't forget about it. It's not going anywhere. This is the person that they are, right? But we can technically improve you. We can send you on training courses. We can change all these other aspects. We can make you a better SEO fella or girl, but we cannot change your beliefs. So I think one of the interesting parts is Through the recruitment process, is how do you find people who are likely to share your belief? And so that I think is a big question for the CEO because when they're trying to get a quadrant one, quadrant three fit, they're not just looking for customers to say, I believe, they're looking for partners and staff. And I saw a really good example of this when I was working at PAM. So I helped those guys build a sales process. They're a software as a service business in Australia, very successful wayfinding business. What we would see is in one out of 10 conversations we'd have with a customer, the customer would turn around and say, could I join your organization? Oh, Not right. only did we strike a quadrant one and quadrant three fit, but they were like, I so believe in what you're describing that I'll leave what I'm doing right now and join your organization.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I've had, I can't say that it was purely a strategic decision on my part but you know some of the best folks that I've hired and people I've had on team has been that fit first and took chances on people that may not have had experience in that role and they were fantastic you know I'd almost take a yeah. team of those people and maybe it's just finally catching up right that it's we no longer just have to do the job that I mean we have to do the job we're hired for but the way we think about roles and functions in organizations, especially on the go to market, I think is is changing. Give me the good customer, empathetic person first every time. We'll figure yeah. out how to <laughs> we'll do the rest. So I know we're starting to run short on time and we have not covered Q four yet, which is important, which most organizations don't. So maybe You know, if you want to give us a a few highlights from from Q4, and I don't want to shortchange it and make it sound like it's not important because it all comes down to the execution there. But yeah, maybe
1: just give us a quick, uh, your overview of of Quadrant 4. Sure thing, Brett. So, well, Quadrant 4 happens to be my favorite quadrant, whether I'm working in that in my business or I'm helping a client. I love Quadrant 4 because Quadrant 4 is how we serve, okay? And so, specifically, it's like the precise set of interactions required to create a customer. Okay, so you know how you go into a business sometimes. You know, Tom does it one way, Jill sells another way, and what you want instead is is you want to get everybody consistently working on exactly the same blueprint, because that way people can then isolate and identify together which ones work, and which ones don't. And so that feedback loop is so much stronger if you've only got one variant, which you're operating on as opposed to many, many different variants.
0: Yeah, I know. And that makes sense. And do you apply that across, again, I'm still more of an advocate of don't think of sales and marketing as sales and marketing. It's really, again, I'm going back to buyer enablement, right? (laughs) How do we help that process? And so I guess where I'm going is from a tactical standpoint, are you looking at kind of the tasks that go across the buying process or the sales process? and then looking at what are the key activities that take place and then maybe we'll figure out who is the person responsible for it so it's really understanding what needs to take place at key met milestones or is that fair way of looking at it
1: yeah you know earlier you were talking about how the goal of the company is not to serve their goal but to serve the customers goal in the possible shortest time so if you cannot wow them with something unique experiential in quadrant five, excuse me, in quadrant four, at the very least, serve them in the fastest possible manner, faster than your competitors could. So what you're doing is you have to become very clear. Every interaction must have a purpose and an objective, and it must help do something for the customer so they reach their goal, right? And so you cut away all the fat, you get away all the rubbish that's unnecessary, and you get them to where they want to go in the fastest possible manner That is the minimum requirement for Quadrant 4. If you don't do that, you miss out on a very important data point that we've discovered called customer expiry because most organizations are not in competition with one another. We found that out in a lot of research where customers didn't buy anything because they decided that the entire industry was so horrendously bad at serving them that they would rather just continue using a slate and chalk and put up with these people.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And so true, right? To do nothing is sometimes the biggest competition that you have. So yeah, I think that's a mistake a lot of companies make is they don't look at, they think, here, here's my two competitors, this is where we're different and we're better. But they didn't address doing nothing, <laughs> right? And how your outcome yeah. is better. And i had actually not heard of Exbury before. So thank you for the, the clear. I mean, it makes sense when you explain it. I don't know if that's an Australian word or... But it, I'm going to start using, it. I keep using some of my other fellow Australian, or not fellow, but yeah, the language. I love the Fortnite. <laughs> so, expiry is my new one. And your definition of that is just do the customers just don't do anything, or what's.
1: Right. So, with customer expiry, the number seems to, to be different depending on the, the buying decision that's being made. Okay. And so, for example, we've seen customer expiry occur in, in 11 minutes. And then we've seen it occur, say in in as long as six to maybe twelve months, right? For a more sophisticated decision, and eleven minutes is, is remarkable. Like I, I worked in a company in the United Kingdom where I helped them build a sales process, and and the operations person told me, yes, there are situations where she has seen that the customer will make a decision in eleven minutes, and I went, holy crap! That means that like if we're going to design 11 interactions in Quadrant 4. We, by better God, better make sure they get done and executed professionally within 11 minutes because now you're thinking about a whole different business, you see. You're not thinking about your competitors anymore because they probably don't know what's going on anyway anyway. Sure. And so you're like, wow, we've got a whole different data point now to track to Quadrant 1. So here comes your Quadrant 1, Quadrant 4 fit, which is customer expiry. If you know that number... If you know that they're going to drop off, doesn't matter what happens, come hell high or water, if they can't make a buying decision within 11 minutes or 4 weeks, they're not going to buy from anybody. If you know that piece of intelligence, you can design something really nasty in Quadrant 4. And that's where I've seen companies that do not have superior products, they have inferior products in Quadrant 2, absolutely bollock businesses with better products because they get a Quadrant 1, Quadrant 4 fit. And startups taking on enterprise... This is a war on quadrant one and four. This is exactly what they're doing to enterprise.
0: Yeah, it makes so much sense and so true. And if you can just execute and provide a better experience, the buyers and the multiple buyers in some cases in B two B, right? Some risk mitigation. Other you're solving user issues. It's you can provide that experience and at the time. I hadn't really thought about it from the but it makes so much sense, <laughs> right? That's a yeah. good to build back from. And if you can execute against that, then again back to your title taking friction out of the the process and you know making it easier for the buyers that's awesome
1: they take uh, the cue you know from quadrant 4 if it's this hard to buy the product imagine how bad the product would be
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's so true yeah and i love the fact of the q1 q4 to take on the startups cuz i'm starting to see some momentum right cuz at least in the states i'm sure you guys are seeing that over there too that some of these large legacy B2B orgs, they're not going to be able to pivot, right? They've kind of made some hacks in place to allow their current employees to work from home and buyers to buy differently than they had been, but they're not fundamentally changing the quadrant four to align better with how the new process is going to look like because they think they're going back to normal. And so if you've got a great idea or even not a great idea, same idea, but you think you can execute and bring it to market and get into the customer quicker. I think we're going to see quite a bit of that to your exact point. It may be an inferior product, but they can provide a much better experience. They're going to win. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Uh, That's awesome. Yeah. Anthony, thank you so much for your time. I still got two more questions for you. I have to ask, you know, what's, what's next for you and, and the company you had mentioned the playbook is coming out or it came out today. So is that the focus? What's, what's on the short-term horizon for
1: you? Yeah, the, the playbook will occupy a little bit of my time coming into August. But I think what's really exciting is we're unveiling the next version of the friction test. You may remember when you were reading through the book, we had done a few friction tests where we try to quantify what friction would look like. It has a quotient and then we try to measure it, measure its accumulation and then benchmark organizations. Well, we've been really working hard the last 12 months on the next version of the product. And that's coming out pretty soon. So I'm very excited about that.
0: No, that's awesome. We will definitely have to have you back on when that, that comes out because it just ties to everything that I believe in taking. You know, This is how these startups are going to win and grow, get to the million. The 10 million is, is, is following this, this type of process, especially around the go-to-market. And last question, and I can let you get your day started is... What is one thing that you would highly recommend? And as I say, it can be personal or professional. What's, what's kind of top of mind for you right now?
1: Yeah, I think as much as we can as founders, B2B founders, we, we have to be consistent. And I think being consistent is not easy. And it doesn't necessarily mean not changing, but it means being very aware that you're creating a test and that you may be part of that test. And holding everything consistent; otherwise, the results that we get they cannot be acted upon if the if the process itself was never consistent.
0: Right. No, that's so true. So true. And that's good. That's a unique answer. I haven't had that one before. So thanks, Brett. <laughs> appreciate definitely appreciate your time. I think the audience is going to get a ton of value out of this. Uh, best place for for folks to find you. I'll add it to the show notes. But you know, do you want? I'll let you kind of best place for people to, to track you down.
1: Yeah, they can find me on LinkedIn if they just Google or link like look at LinkedIn on Anthony Condores or just key in runfrictionless.com. That's pretty quick too.
0: And I can attest that it's all over the place right now. And I highly encourage you to check out the content. If you go to the book, has got its own website and there's a ton of free content and tools there to help you as well. Like I said, if you're a founder struggling with sales or looking or you're stuck in the business, highly Highly recommend you guys check out this check out this book. So, Anthony, appreciate it. You know, enjoy, stay Thanks safe and healthy out there, and we'll we'll catch up with you before too much longer. Thank you for having me on the B2B Founder Show. Thank you. Take care. Appreciate. It. Take care. Thanks, Anthony.
1: Bye. All right.